calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. everybody it's halloween month kind of it's the month of halloween i guess also sometimes people call it october i'm sarah century i am a host of bitches on comics that's the podcast you're listening to exciting so i today i'm the only host but fortunately for everybody i am joined by a guest so therefore it will not just be me monologuing although write in if that's something you want because i do it in my room by myself all of the time so my guest today, I'm going to have you introduce yourself because I, I, I trust that you can do it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Haley Piper. I'm the author of books like Queen of Teeth, The Worm and His Kings, um, A Light Most Hateful, and uh, like a lot of short stories that are in like Pseudopod, Cast of Wonders, Vastarian, Cosmic Horror Monthly. Um, yeah, I like to write horror, <laughs> dark fiction, queer fiction. Uh, weird stuff. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, yeah, that's good. We could get into it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it because your bibliography is just kind of blowing up. Like it's out of control, kind of. I, it feels, <laughs> and I don't know if you feel this way, but the more stories that I have out in the world, I'm just like, ooh, little pieces like running into all directions <laughs> or whatever. That's almost a horror story in and of itself, right? Like, but yeah, how do you feel about all of these stories? With like short stories, it's fun to get to explore all kinds of different things. And that's, it is kind of like them running off on their own <laughs> because once they're out there, they're out there. And like, you don't know which one is going to be someone's first story that they encounter. And that's kind of going to color their um, their perception <laughs> of you at first, which is so, so like, most of my stuff is horror, but it's different kinds of horror. I like to dabble in all the subgenres and and mixing horror with like fantasy and sci-fi and romance and other stuff uh, for different things. So somebody can encounter something like Shakespeare Unleashed, which is like my story is a soliloquy of tongues, which is essentially about it's from the point of view of Queen Gertrude as if she has like misophonia and orchestrates the the murder of the king. 
because he keeps making mouth noises. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, uh, that sounds silly, but it's done as a very like brutal story. Yeah. And that could be something versus like, if somebody f- first encountered with me is like the, this story that appeared in baffling magazine, the heart is a spare part, which is like one of my few non horror stories that's been published where it's like, the old west but robots and the main character is a cowboy that was in love with this like business tycoon and who's now started to cause trouble since the robot was out of town it's it's very cute silly Mm -hmm. story so a person who's reading the shakespeare one a person who's reading that like silly cowboy robot romance one are going to have very different opinions about what a Haley Piper story is. Right. So it does feel a little out of control. Yeah, you're like, oh no, it's all over the place. I was thinking about whenever I was putting together my short story collection and it was like, I hid the more brutal ones like later in the collection kind of because I was like, oh, let's start on like an like this story is messed up. It's horror, right? But like, if they can forgive me for this story, this story, this story, this story, then they can handle this story, right? And you just don't have that control (laughs) whenever you're a part of an anthology because it's like you have no idea. You're going in totally unclear as to what the rest of the people are going to be doing. But you, it's like you have to go in with this extra amount of faith that everybody is going to do an incredible job. I personally have never been disappointed so far. But yeah, I would like to hear about that a little bit because not only have you been in so, so many anthologies and that have had, you know, great themed anthologies, which I think is like the way of the future for anthologies. I always love themed anthologies. I would just love to hear a little bit more about you being involved in anthologies. That was the way that I first discovered your work. So so on the collection thing, I actually had the opposite approach. I started with my brutal stories. Nice. <laughs> and then and then I put in, like, it was two brutal stories, and then it was two humorous horror stories. I don't know why I did that. I just, I guess I wanted to start with a punch. Yeah. But the thing is, though, that control is a complete illusion, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. There's so many people who who like to hop around in collections, and they don't care what kind of order we, we put them in. They don't care what kind of... <laughs> theme what they don't care how we were like making the stories beautifully flow from one to the other (laughs) they don't care about that they're just like I feel like reading this one's okay the table of contents says this story's three pages long I'm gonna jump to that one right and like oh that one has a neat title I'm gonna jump back there Uh, I want to read the novelette at the end okay I'll read that next you know they just we just pretend that we get to decide (laughs) Mm mm-hmm which is a good I guess a good segue into anthologies we also have no control really I guess I don't really worry about what the other people are doing in an anthology. Um, when, when I used to do more submissions, I would think about it when I was getting started because I would think, you know, I think about the theme and I go, what's the, like, what's the first thought? What's oh, the yeah. first inclination with this thing? And then it's just like, okay, these are like the first three things. Don't do those because a bunch of people probably thought of those and they jumped on those. Um, so, so my, my thinking is to try to kind of approach, uh, an anthology theme sideways of like, what's less likely to appear. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I guess it, I, I never really thought about it, what the quality of the other stories were. I guess, I guess I kind of just assume that, you know, if they're in, then they're in. Then yeah. They're good. And I hope people like mine, but even that's completely unpredictable because you'll have a story that you're like, this is one of my best stories. This is my, this is one of my, among my greatest stories. And no one ever mentions it or cares. 
versus one that you're just like, oh, I don't know, did I, did I, should I have done this differently with that story? And it's like everybody's favorite <laughs> or like you have no control over anything. Right. Yeah. Like the things that like Dorothy Parker quoted for or whatever. And it's um, like, oh yeah, there was like a whole other library of stuff <laughs> that she did. But, you know, you're known for like the sayings that you came up with that can still be kind of quippy like <laughs> a century later, right? Or something. It's uh, It's definitely out of control, I would say. But I think that that's kind of fun. So <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's kind of I mean, it's kind of the same with us creating this stuff. I mean, if you're, I mean, there's, and I know there are people who are much more structured about it. They're just like, okay, at page 90 is when this should happen. Kind of like with a, like with the very structured movie script type of thing. But mm-hmm. like, and I, I don't work that way though. So for me, it's like, well, that kind of publishing chaos is kind of just representative of the creative chaos that, that you know, is why you can come up with a bunch of wild stories that have very different structures and and characters and things. I like that now anthologies often are themed because then you have this kind of prompt in a weird way where you can go, oh, uh, yeah, I never thought about that, but let me go ahead and think about that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's neat to try to think of all the facets of it. I think at a glance, a lot of themes might seem simple, but none of them are really. Right. They're all they're all full of potential. Yeah, I think so. Did you grow up reading anthologies? Was that always something that you were interested in? That's a good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did read them. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that the fantasy and horror collections, those like phone book sized <laughs> like mm-hmm. fantasy and horror anthologies, that was like something I would read like every single year because they always had it at Barnes and Noble and there was like no oh, okay. no guarantee that there was going to be, um, you know, that I would be able to figure out what other kind of horror I would like, you know, it's like, oh, I only have like $15. <laughs> They're like, uh, you know, it's just like samples essentially. Yeah. Um, I I read them. I just, I don't think it was a frequent thing because I couldn't find them. Um, I don't think I went to a Barnes and Noble until I was like 25 or something. Um, Cause we just mm-hmm. didn't have that around us. And like, you never knew what like Walden books or whatever was going to be carrying. I would, mm-hmm. I, I had, I do recall I had checked out some from like the library. I, I lived in such a tiny nothing town. <laughs> there was just like nothing there. I did too, but they, uh, it was like, basically I moved, I think right around whenever I was 16. Did you move when you were around 25? Uh, I don't remember, honestly. I think, (laughs) I think, I mean, I, I went all over, but like at a certain point I started getting books like Mm eBooks. Um, cause it was just hard to, when I started moving, it was like, all right, well, I guess I'm leaving all the books behind. (laughs) Right what am I going to do? Like I made sure like take my favorites, like I made sure it's like, okay, nobody's taking my, my Sandman collection and whatever, but like other books just kind of had to stay. And I just, yeah, I just eventually they just got donated or whatever. Um, like I did read some, but I don't really remember the titles or anything. Like I just, um, like when, when I thought, when I would find one, I would read it. Right. Um, but it wasn't like a frequent thing. I, I probably would have devoured them more if, if it had been a frequent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just couldn't find them, honestly. I think they've taken off more too. Like I think they that have, we see a lot more anthologies. And that's the thing. Um, like we have to kind of acknowledge that right. what's going on in like horror, for example, right now is a very different time than even 10 years ago, mm-hmm. let alone like 20 years ago. We're in kind of a, a horror golden age right now. 
So there are a lot of anthologies. There's a lot of avenues for people to explore. There's, there's something for every, every kind of horror reader. Um, and, and horror for people who don't think they're into horror. Right. <laughs> um, there, there's, there's just, there's something for everyone right now. And you can't always say that about every single, every single time period. So like, I just didn't know where to look for that stuff. So if I came across one, I read it, but that was kind of it. I, I, um, yeah, I wish I could remember any of the titles. They're just, you know, it's one of those things where you just, you're a kid and you just pull it off the library shelf and borrow oh, totally. it and bring it back. And it's like, you know, back then you're like devouring a book a week. So they just, they just kind of fly by. For sure. Yeah. I, I think like, yeah, uh, comic book anthologies and stuff. Cause I would have like a pull list as soon as I could. Um, I, you know, all of that. And then TV anthologies, of course, like everybody saw, oh, yeah. you know, Tales from the Crypt. Or oh, whatever. totally. No, I like those. I remember like, um, Trilogy of Terror. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> And like, I remember anthology TV shows better, probably like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and such. Um, But there were, there were movies. I'm just blanking on them right now. They have kind of this fun thing, right? Where it's like the short format is just like, you're in, you're out. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's great. Um, I remember tuning into like, are you afraid of the dark? Oh yeah. (laughs) And it was always something new. And I was like, that's just cool. That's cool to just have. Because that's, I mean, that's where we started with this stuff is like telling ghost stories. Like, it's not like you, I forget where I said this. I think I said it to Becky Spratford in something. I can't remember, but I was like, we didn't sit around campfires. Like, okay, let me tell you an entire horror novel. (laughs) Like we tell short stories. Right. (laughs) I was just like cracking up about this, thinking about if you were trying to sit at a campfire telling everybody the entirety of it. (laughs) That's exactly the example I was thinking of. <laughs> right, because it's, it's like, the okay, so we're going to be book. here for a week. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of subplots, right? Like, <laughs> right. And, and like trying to do the back and forth chronology. Okay, like now let's go back to 1957. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might not work quite as well. No, I don't think so. But, and that's just, yeah, it's just, um, hell, I mean, they don't have to be very long. Like, I, one of my favorite movie openings is uh, John Carpenter's The Fog. And the guy telling the story that kind of sets everything up at the very beginning, he says like, okay, five minutes to midnight, enough time for one more story. I timed that. It does not even take him five minutes to tell that story. <laughs> um, and that's just, but it's still creepy. It's, yeah. it's just, it's it's like, it takes him like two or three minutes to tell. And it's it's so creepy even by itself without without even considering what happens afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that movie as well. I was going to ask because you, it, the timeline I don't know, right? I first discovered your stories via anthologies. But I'm not 100% as far as I've I've read a bunch of interviews with you and I, I followed you on oh, Twitter. No, I don't before. remember anything I said. <laughs> I'm like, uh oh, because this is directly rooted to it. Right. But there was an interview where you mentioned that you were kind of encouraged to write for the first time because you had read Jurassic Park, which, first of all, is I was also the kid who was like, I'm going to read this book. <laughs> but instead, everybody else is like, the movie is amazing. And it's like, it is, but I'm going to read the novel beginning to end. And the novel is scarier. It really is. But it said that you were prompted by reading Jurassic Park. And then later you got heavier into it because you read it. Those are two huge, huge books, right? Like 
two of the biggest properties in the history of ever. But <laughs> ones where it's like, I know a lot of people have seen the film version. I don't know that everybody has read the books, right? And I think that there's just kind of an interesting maybe dichotomy between those two things. So I'm curious why those those two. Is there a connection that you can feel between them and or um, you know, just what got you, what, why was it Jurassic Park was the spark and then it was the flame? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I don't know be exactly because those two, those two books could not be more different. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, well, I, I mean, I love dinosaurs, so that's like Jurassic Park, easy, you know. And you did a dinosaur story. Yeah, recent, uh, like last year, I think, I, I don't know. Um, I think it was just I was I was obsessed with the movie. Um, understandably, it's an amazing movie. Yeah, I had a poster of the movie, and I just like I memorized every word on that poster, <laughs> which is ridiculous. <laughs> like, like I don't know why. It's like why am I? Why was I reading? You know, it's like yes, I must memorize the name Laura Dern, which which is important. Yeah, um, you're like <laughs> I know the gaffer's name on this production. Right, <laughs> it was it was ridiculous, but and but you know, it says based on a novel by Michael Crichton, and I was just like, I want to read the book, and my parents would not see any objection to getting me that. Um, and now, as far as I can recall, there isn't anything like you know that wouldn't be appropriate for a child in it, even though it is, you know, an adult book, technically, it was just a lot of scientific words I didn't understand. The child death at the beginning of the book, probably. Oh, well, I mean, <laughs> it's kind whatever. of like, it's kind of like alluded to as well. It's like, oh, that it's kid one of those, goes Right. Missing. They don't really show right. it. it uh, that's the thing with that book. It has two prologues. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I don't know when you're a kid, it, it depends. Like if you're a horror kid, kids dying in something is way less traumatic than two adults. Like mm-hmm. I'm way more bothered by things happening to kids in, in fiction now as an adult than I was when I was a kid. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I just, because, because bad things would happen to me. So I just like, yeah, of course bad things are happening to kids in, in movies and stuff too. <laughs> right. Plus if you like, you grow up on, like I grew up in the nineties, but I still, that also meant growing up on eighties movies. Yeah. And eighties kids they're movies all are horror. scary as yeah, hell. Yeah. They're all horror movies. <laughs> right. So, even when they're not trying to be, they're still yeah, terrifying. Yeah, for sure. You are a hundred percent right. They're, <laughs> we're all carrying around trauma from watching eighties children's movies. <laughs> <laughs> so Jurassic Park was like, not as scary to me as like Hook, for right. example, or the Goonies. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, a book is different. It, it can be scarier, but it also, you know, it, that's up to you. In yeah, some for ways, sure. As, as the reader. I got it for my eighth birthday and I read it and that was my first adult book. And then so I was like, and it's funny, like I, they still do this today, but the, at the back of the book, it was like this book by Michael Crichton and this book by Michael Crichton. And I was like, I want these two. So they got me like Sphere and Congo. And I just was like reading Michael Crichton books until I ran out. And like that was considered acceptable. Mm-hmm. Like Michael Crichton doesn't really write about, he doesn't write gore really. Like, you know, bad stuff is happening, but it's not like described in detail right yeah and it's like it's a mass paperback I mean it is as well right but it's like the understanding of a Michael Crichton book is is that as far into stuff as he does get there's lines right you know right it's it's what I mean and and it could be I'm just not remembering but like I don't think I ever read like a sex scene in a Michael Crichton book so 
at least the ones I read. So it's like nobody was, and not, not to mention back then, nobody was really, you know, like parents weren't sitting there thumbing through books. They didn't have no, time for that. No, no. My parents Like at least my didn't. parents no. didn't. So it's just like, you want to read? Great. Kids are supposed to read. Here's a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, I think it only would have become a thing because I started, I didn't have anything to read. Um, so, and I, I did like after Michael Crichton, I got into goosebumps for a little while and like I did, I ate through those because they, they just don't take that long to read when, yeah. you, when you're a fast reader. But so like I started taking, I went into my mom's room and I found, um, Mr. Murder by Dean Koontz. And I, I forget why I picked that up, but I just, um, I started reading it from where she was, um, cause she seemed to kind of have abandoned it. Um, and then I just like went back to the beginning. I just read the whole thing and she, I think she did catch me, but she didn't have a problem with it. She was just, I don't know. We had an understanding. Um, <laughs> so I started reading some of the other ones. I read, um, Watchers. Watchers. Nope. I think I missed that one. And I also, I, it sounds like I'm listening to myself describe a reading journey because it was much the same with me. Um, <laughs> but I think that I, you're, you're one up on the Dean Koontz because I'm pretty sure I haven't read that one. I read a lot of them because she had a lot. Yep, I remember they when were he, everywhere, when, right? I mean, right. And he, he wrote, he's written so many. Yeah. And if you, you say you're from a small rural town, I was, it was the same. So it was like, if there's anything in my vicinity that I right. physically What's in can the grocery store? read, I'm going to read it. Right. So that's right. why I've read How Green Was My Valley. Like that's Yeah. We didn't have like, we didn't have a neighborhood. Like I grew up in the woods. Yeah. So it's just like, there wasn't like, it's not like you, you'd see, we'd watch these movies where these kids are in these like suburbs and like they're all their friends live in neighboring houses and stuff. And I'm just like, where, where is like this? And I, <laughs> like, I, I knew like our family had friends who like had kids who like they lived in those kinds of places, but I never did. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was just whatever you could read. Like, I remember when intensity came out and my mom was like, I think I was 10. My mom was like, I'm going to read this first just to make sure. And like, she, I mean, honestly, I think most parents at least these days if they read that book and then were like considering if their 10 year old could read it would just be like no I think you have to wait yeah <laughs> um she was like yeah like I you know I, I was trusted to have a good sense of the difference between fiction and reality mm -hmm. um so it's fine and eventually I I think it just petered out um you know I, I kind of stopped reading for a while um when I like got depressed and such and like it was later that I um got me my first Stephen King book. So I think Dean Koontz was kind of the bridge between Michael Crichton and Stephen King. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so they got me uh, Dreamcatcher, which was fine. But it was like, I, I was, it was scary though. And it was interesting. And then it was something that had kind of been around. Like Stephen King's It had been just around. Like my, um, one of my teachers had told our class about it in elementary school for some damn reason. <laughs> um, and like, my mom's friends had copies of it on their bookshelves or on their coffee tables. And I was like, I was always drawn to it, but I just, I wasn't allowed to read it. Um, and it's not like they knew what was in it necessarily. They just thought it was too scary. Mm -hmm. um, so finally, when I was a teenager, I finally got a copy and I just, um, it took me a couple of weeks. It took me a while. I, I read it, it over a summer. <laughs> it is long. I, I read it over a summer. And I remember the night I finished it, I was reading the last like 200 pages all in one go. And I was up until two in the morning. And when I finished it, like just the, 
emotions in me of just like the, like, I didn't know that books could be like that. Like just the, the way the climax weaves so smoothly between the past and the, and the present uh, of the book. And it just makes you feel this like intense, like this, this, this grandiosity to the universe while also dealing with this very personal circumstance with these characters. And like, I, I finished it and I was like, I want to do this. I want to, I want to make people feel like this made me feel. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say that even though those are two totally different books, right? They also are both about monsters. And the monster takes very different forms because it's, you know, it's almost hard to say that the dinosaurs are the monster in Jurassic Park, considering right. the fact that they are just doing dinosaur stuff, right? Like right. That's, it's kind of hard to be mad at them, I guess. No, and that's that's the funny thing. That's I didn't I never looked at them as monsters. Um, they were always animals to me, and I just found them fascinating. And that's actually kind of why I hate the Jurassic World movies. Sure. Um, because they do treat them like they're just monsters. Seriously. I hate it. That's I just can't the militarization it. of movies, right? Exactly, Where it's just, exactly. oh, well, it's a dinosaur, but it's attacking us. So let's shoot right. it down or something. Right. And it's like, people are the reason that it's attacking you. So right. maybe you should go talk to other people about this. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe get away from the dinosaur, but, you know, or if you have to defend yourself, defend yourself. But that whole idea of just shoot them out of the sky or like whatever right. is just ridiculous. I hate it whenever that shows up in anything yeah. that's nature based, right? Because you're like, you're just uncreative. You can't think of a better way of dealing <laughs> with this. And that, and you can see that difference between as, as bad as the original Jurassic Park sequels were, you can see the difference. And I'd much rather watch those movies again than the Jurassic World movies. Like at least they're honest. At least they like, it feels like, the people making them enjoyed dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. Whereas I never, and again, I'm just, I'm just complaining at this point. Um, <laughs> but like with Jurassic World, it feels like, it feels like a chore. It feels like it was a chore to have to make a movie about dinosaurs. And if you think it's a chore to make a movie about dinosaurs, then you probably shouldn't be making a movie about dinosaurs. Right. Let somebody who loves dinosaurs make the dinosaur movie. I know, because it's what is so successful about Jurassic Park, the original, is the sense right. of wonder and majesty. Exactly. Of, which ha has not aged at one day. Like, no, literally, no, if you watch incredible. it today, I watched it whenever it first came out. If you watch it today, it's 100% the same. I have every yeah. beat of that movie memorized because I watched it on VHS as a kid in a rural totally. place. I only had 10 VHS tapes. <laughs> so Jurassic Park was on repeat, right? So it's right. just like I saw that movie so many times. And if you watch it now, it's still just like the velociraptors are terrifying and beautiful. The, you know, the moment of the stegosaurus is just every part of it is just absolutely stunning because there's just that sense of awe and reverence and whatever. I don't have to drag Jurassic World, <laughs> but if I do, they don't have to worry about it because they make billions of dollars, right? right. So they and can that's, show. And that's the thing. I'm just like, I well, it was, it was so funny because I, I just, um, like I, I first saw Jurassic Park in the theater. I was like seven um, when it came out and I was just in awe. And I did, I also was like, like you just on repeat on VHS. Mm -hmm. um, but then there was a while went where I didn't watch it. And then it was like three years ago 
it was on Netflix and I was just like, I'm going to watch Jurassic Park. It's been a really long time. And I watched it and I was just like, damn, this is a really good movie. Yeah. <laughs> like this is still a really good movie. It's a blockbuster where people are acting their asses off and that is yes. so unheard of in 2023. Not yeah. that the actors wouldn't, right? Like they- They just don't have a choice. They're not like when you get stuck in a green box. Yeah. <laughs> If it's an MCU movie, it's like not to not to drag the MCU actors. Again, these are all actors who in right. interviews will be like, was that acting? Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, they're, it's like it's different from the other forms of acting that they do. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about this just being like back then with like this, <laughs> just when we were kids, things were good. It's like totally just like. And I hate doing that. Of I course. Hate saying things like that because it's I, like, it's such an. And like, it's not different now, right? Like, there's great things being made. There will always be great things being made. Right. But blockbusters specifically maybe deteriorated a bit. With I, age. Right. Because, because there's been, there's now the ability to assembly line them. That, I mean, one of the things, and like, I, I wrote this in a, like a tweet draft, but I haven't posted it, <laughs> but I'll say it on here, I yeah, guess. You heard it here um, first, it's, folks. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things is if you, if you look at the behind the scenes of a lot of good movies, there are a lot of accidents. There are a lot of things, not like physical accidents where people are in danger, but like things didn't work right for one reason or another. Like this person couldn't show up on set this day. Um, we couldn't get this special effect to work. Um, we like, it wouldn't stop raining one thing or another. And, um, a lot of it was just out of their control and they had to either find a way to work that in or, um, find clever ways around it or, or whatever. Um, Jaws is a good example because they were going to show the shark more and they couldn't because it wasn't working and that ended up making the movie better. Right. Um, nowadays I think some of the problem is that there's there's too much control. You don't have to worry about mistakes because you can just do anything and fix anything in a computer. I'm not saying that that is that the ability to do so is a bad thing, but unfortunately a lot of a lot of the magic of creating art happens in the moment because you are forced to. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we see a lot of creativity right now with a lot of lower budget, you know, movies. Um, and I think that's part of why horror is doing so well right. in movies because they're given like, okay, well, here's like a tiny, here's a toothpick of the tree we gave to an MCU movie mm-hmm. and they have to make a movie out of that. And so they have to get clever. They have to, they have to figure things out. They don't yeah. have a choice. Um, they can't just, they can't just drop another 10 million or whatever because like, oh, we felt like giving Thor a different hat to it for that part or, or <laughs> right. whatever. Um, yeah. And horror fans are a discerning audience. So it's like, you know that you have to, you know, not not to say that perhaps that applies I mean, to two people like, in this call. <laughs> we like our schlock too. Yes. Not to say that we don't like schlock. That's, it's, to me, it's a, it's two different things, right? Because right. <laughs> something can be schlock and be absolutely great, right? But it's like the standards for like budget constraints and things like that yeah. are completely different almost among horror fans because we're very used to something like Blair Witch just shaking a camera a bunch and scaring the right. hell out of us right right but it's also the fact that like the reason that Blair Witch is so popular is not because it's a movie where people are shaking a camera <laughs> it's because 
it's terrifying. And they keep right. leaving these unseen things all over the place. And it's right. just very, very scary. That movie could have easily just vanished into nothing. It becomes this huge cultural phenomenon, similar with Jaws, similar with all of these other things where it's very low budget, you know, all of these constraints, bad things happening that day on set, having to figure it out, as you say. And all of that, a horror audience will forgive as long as the movie still does something to our blood pressure (laughs) or kind of, you know, makes you feel some kind of way. And it's just like, yes, all right, embraced. (laughs) I love this movie. Right. And and that's one of the neat things. Like, I, I can't even list examples because it's one of those things where it's just like horror continues to create classics. Um, mm-hmm. of course we're going to have a lot of buzz about like movies that come out in a year because like, oh, this is neat new stuff. But you'll see that each year there's, there's some things that will, you can tell are going to endure, um, yeah. because they've done well with that. And, um, I think that's cool. I, I think, I think horror fans go into something not, and this isn't, I don't want to generalize every single individual, but right, in, I course. think mostly horror fans do go into something ready to welcome it. It's not, I don't think most horror fans go into something with like a checklist. It's like, it has to do this, 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 and this, (laughs) or else I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I just don't, yeah, I just don't see that with, with us. But, um, horror also gets to avoid some of the stuff that you see with like comparing Jurassic Park and Jurassic World trilogies. Um, that's you militarization is right. It's magic versus militarization. And the thing with horror movies that you don't really there's not the budget for that and there's not the inclination. To me, even whenever the military does appear in horror stories, it's often highly critical of the military, right? Because, you know, the military is all over alien, but right. it's not necessarily a good thing. We empathize with the soldiers, but <laughs> there's a... Right. And, that, and that's right. And that's one of those things where it's just like the militarization is a separate thing from like military being in a movie. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's it's kind of a an atmosphere. Like military is in Godzilla movies all the time. Right. Like the but I don't consider them militarized movies. Like I'm not sure if I'm making maybe maybe no, I'm looking for a different word. Like that like, makes uh, perfect sense to me because I agree. Because well, once again, what's more you know, it's criticizing nuclear <laughs> bombs in Right. I mean Japan, it's right. So. It's it's a different right, it's a different circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um I just I think it's a matter of perspective yeah and um what the movie is trying to present um as important and i think i think the difference is that in jurassic park series the magic is what's important whereas later on the functionality is what's important hello there oh hi (laughs) how are you doing today well, I just took the biggest drink of coffee, but I think you already knew that. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I'm here just to talk about, you know, how great our Patreon is. What's so great about it? <laughs> well, we talk about a host of things, whether it be comics, movies, people we don't like, people we love, <laughs> animals that we're obsessed with, favorite <laughs> colors, sometimes. We have the X-Men specials that I've been doing with Priya. And yeah, there's endless, honestly, just endless, so many others, one billion different things that you could 
listen to on our Patreon. And if you want to go there today, then you could go to patreon.com slash queerspec. And there are many different tiers to sign up for. However, if you sign up for any tier, you get everything because we're commies. (laughs) (laughs) Communism is good, kids. Always remember. (laughs) Tune in for our next Patreon special, the commie special. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's fun to chat because it's like we're going in like a hundred different directions, which is always kind of just the nature of the beast whenever it comes to this podcast, because it's always just being like, let's talk about all of the things that you like, because I like a bunch of things too. (laughs) But I was going to say that when you talk about a matter of perspective, we just mentioned that we don't view the Jurassic Park dinosaurs as monsters. It's more like there was kind of a monstrous human greed behind them that caused human death, right? So... That's not necessarily like they're the bad guys, but there is a bad guy (laughs) in the story. You just have to be discerning. It's not necessarily the monster. So when we talk about it, that monster is a child predator, essentially, and how child predators exist in this way where nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody sees it. Nobody acknowledges it. And it still it becomes ingrained into the nature of how our communities function sometimes. And so I think that that is a very different kind of monster. There's no questioning that Pennywise is in fact a monster because Pennywise is a child predator. There is nothing scarier than the opening of it. I think that that has got to be one of the most, that that you could build an entire franchise on this. You could remake this a million times because (laughs) it is impossible to forget the first 16 or so pages of that book where you are you know what's going to happen. And it is awful. It is just like tense every step of the way. Oh, You're absolutely. Screaming for Georgie to turn around, get out of there, please, <laughs> God. And it doesn't matter how many times I see it, it's always going to be jarring. And I say that as somebody who is generally fairly critical of Stephen King. I think that that opening is just absolute masterclass in writing, in yeah. horror, in the things that that book is about, they're all established right there. Children specifically have something to fear from this monster that adults can't see. And that is just stunning. And I think that that has a lot to do with how monsters can be viewed and how there's this kind of sleight of hand with monsters. This is how I'm going to relate this to your work (laughs) because (laughs) you have monsters in your stories. And I just want to talk to you a little bit about the role that monsters play because there's things like, you know, a monstrous transformation that makes somebody that people are against, but it's the right thing. And then there's, you know, there's people who do monstrous things who aren't necessarily monsters, et cetera, et cetera. You know how it goes. I just want to hear why do (laughs) monsters keep popping up in your work? Because obviously we're in the horror genre, 
but there's a lot. You could, it could just be serial killers <laughs> or whatever, you know, you could do anything else. And that's obviously, I think that that would count as a monster, but you know, physical monsters, I think is something that pops up a lot. So let's get into that. <laughs> well, um, I just, I always love creatures. Um, you know, that's like and the easiest way to get me to watch some movies, for example, is like, do you have a creature? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's the same with writing. I think human monsters are, I think also in all of my books, um, but I, I like to have creatures. I think, I think human monsters come out as part of the nature of the beast. Um, they just, I don't, I don't always plan them, but they, mm-hmm. they're going to grow out of it because it is a matter of perspective. Um, whereas creatures are going to come up because I like them and I want them. Um, and sometimes they are, you know, they're, sometimes they're violent. Sometimes they are horrible, but I think what makes them interesting is, the, is what's the reason behind them. Mm-hmm. And it's, it gets a little difficult when they were once human, like, uh, Benny Rose, the cannibal King is, is you could see him as just simply a ghost, but he is, he is a, he is a creature. He has a body. Um, it's not a body that's just a human body. Like, you know, you burn if you touch his skin, like, you know, he has, he has some kind of function, but he mm-hmm. happens because of human, just human nature because of bad things happen. It's, it's as simple as that. The reason that the characters are in a position that they're in to have to deal with him though, is because of ordinary humans who are terrible. Right. Versus something like the gray maiden in the Worminous Kings who was never human. She's like this bird creature from a parallel universe, but she does what she does because she's alone. And just to go back to Stephen King, um, he has this, I can't memorize, quote it off the top of my head, but I can paraphrase like they eat, that loneliness is the greatest cause of, of people doing terrible things, like that no hell compares to loneliness. Mm. Um, and so as for the gray maidens, the only one of her kind that she understands of herself and she understands the terrible people using her better than she understands her own species. It's really just as simple as she's just, she's doing what makes sense to her because she just doesn't have anything else mm-hmm. versus something like queen of teeth where, you know, magenta is, is the fun monster because she's, <laughs> right. she's still, she's, she's funny and she's, she wants peanut butter and she wants sex and she um, really deep down, she and Yaya just want to be left alone and the, you know, authorities and the corporation stuff that caused her to exist don't want to leave her alone and things just keep getting bad and worse. And you end up sympathizing with her because she never wanted any of this. Right. Uh, It wasn't, it wasn't her call, but I, I wrote, forget when I wrote this article. It's probably after the Worminous Kings came out, but I just, um, I think that terrible people are going to find a way to use something, whether it's good, bad, indifferent to their advantage. And that's what a lot of the awful humans in my books do. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have to be on purpose, but it still happens. Uh, The most, my most recent book, Cruel Angels Past Sundown, same thing. It's like this, this uh, character, becomes aware of this of this monumental force and he's just like you know what i'm just going to i'm just going to dedicate myself to this completely because people people gravitate towards things bigger than themselves whether it's a cult or a deity right. or or an ideal or a hatred you know we we are social creatures and to be 
alone from that, to be left out of that is a very hard thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then that does kind of make the monster almost always, right? Because you have, you know, what Frankenstein, I guess, would be. Yeah, that's like the classic example. Yeah. And then, of course, I mean, monsters have always existed. But I think that back in the day, there was more of a and I can't tell, obviously, because we don't really even have recorded, good recorded history for the most part. But Right. But if you think like to like Greek myth, for example, like it was seen as the right thing to do to go and slay the monster. Right. And it's like, you That's know, what even something do. as time goes on, we're like, no, the Medusa totally had a point. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, so I think it does change over time. Like it does become, you know, the Medusa alone in her cave or Frankenstein being stricken with, you know, agony because he's the only one of his kind and all of this kind of stuff. I think that, yeah, you're kind of onto something here is what I'm saying. (laughs) I mean, and that's, and that's the books. Like I, I mean, there's so many stories, but the, the stories I get to explore some of the small details can get blown up to be like the entirety of a story. You mentioned the dinosaur one. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you're, I think you're referring to the turning from other terrors. That's right. Other terrors. And that's a good so that's anthology. Those, yeah. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a wonderful anthology. And so with that, with that story, you're, you're in the perspective of a child who is discovered slowly turning into a pterodactyl essentially. And that this is a thing that happens to, that's been happening to kids at random. They can't figure out why it's happening to her parents. She is the monster. Right. She has her existence through no fault of her own, but nonetheless it's happening, has disrupted what they consider to be a normal life. They bring her to doctors. They can't help. And not to spoil things, but near the end of the story, they, as she's finally come to accept what she's becoming, they try to poison her. Mm-hmm. It's a, that, And I think that story very much illustrates where I am as far as the, the creature monster versus the human monster. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that whenever I was reading it, actually, and just being, yeah, because we're hearing from, you know, in quotations, the monster side of the story. I appreciated that you didn't particularly go out of your way to villainize the parents, because even though through the entire thing, they're doing genuinely horrific things. Obviously, whenever you read it, you're like, horror story. These parents are awful. They don't have love for their children. You know, like all of their, their love for their child is so conditional, right? It's supposed to be unconditional and it's so conditional that it's like, if this happens, this happens and this happens, you're out. (laughs) And that's basically how they end up dealing with this problem is by being like, well, you are the disruption, And to them, they're probably the victims, right? But that's how people are, is they'll do horrible things and still consider themselves to be the victim of circumstance, you know? And so I thought that that was one of the kind of like master strokes of the story where I was like, cool, because it would have been easy to write them as just being horrific. And then the horror was a lot more subtle, I think. Well, that's the funny thing. Um... For me, that's not easier. And this, and it's probably to a detriment, but like, uh, as far as like, it makes it, it makes it like I have to take more time with things. But like, the story feels incomplete if you don't see their side, even if their side of it is terrible. Right. Like, for example, um, Benny Rose, the people essentially setting up this situation are awful. 
They don't see themselves that way, though. They see it as like, well, we have a right to decide what our community is and we should be comfortable. And like, you know, this is a really big inconvenience for us. And kids are really annoying. So, you know, and they shouldn't be here anyway. So really, we're not doing anything wrong. It's just, you know, this is just taking care of how, how we do things. You know, with the Worminous Kings, the cultists, um, the cultists have different, all have different perspectives on what the worm is. But like they're the um, main antagonist of that situation feels that she's going to make the world a better place. It's like, no, we should destroy the current version of events. And then under the worm, there will be a world where nobody hates anybody. And because that goal is so pure and perfect, nothing I do is really that bad because it, it's outweighed by the good that this will, you know, the ends justifying the means. Right. Um, I, I think probably funny enough, Queen of Teeth is the one where I did the least to humanize the human monsters because we already have Doc representing that where she's been working for this pharmaceutical company and she's done terrible things, but she also feels awful about it and she's very conflicted about her role in events and what kind of person she is. And that kind of freed me up to be like, you know what? the police, the executives, the other scientists, they're all just, they're in it for the money, they're in it for the control, and that's all that matters to them. But like, you know, it, it typically is because they, they these characters feel that what they're doing is going to be for the best, or at least for the best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the parents in that story, it's not that they want to kill their child, they just feel like, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm so tired. I just want things to feel normal again. And it's not justifiable and it's not right, but you can see what that that's their perspective. You can see why they just, you know, someone can remorsefully do a terrible thing. Right. But that them feeling bad about it does not change the fact that they're doing a terrible thing. Oh, but yeah. I think that knowing how they feel about it does, it both fleshes out the character but also as readers, it, I think it's important for people to get away from the idea of I'm a good person. Yeah. Because when you decide that you're a good person, then you start justifying the things you do that aren't so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important to understand that you can feel guilty about something and it's not actually something you did wrong, but you can also feel bad about a thing you're doing and that doesn't make it okay to do the thing you're doing. And I think that full human experience is important to explore in fiction. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. I was, <laughs> it reminds me because earlier this year, I read a book called Aftermath that was about the 10 years after uh, World War II ended. And the story was basically, I mean, it's not a story. It was a factual recounting, but it basically just focused a lot on not only how did people survive after this, but how much the German people kind of felt like they had been victimized by the whole everything that had happened. People who had actively been fine with their neighbors being carried, carried out of their houses right. and things were able to just feel as though, well, I did lose a lot during the war, though, or, or something. And I think that that's something that we see all of the time. And it's something that I would more like to be aware of that tendency in myself, I guess, and obviously in other people. But I think it's important because a lot of times people view, you know, any kind of a story as like, oh, this has to be a moral parable. 
and they can't deal with like a sense of subtlety to it. And I think that it's important to be like good people or people who consider themselves to be good can make huge, horrible mistakes all of the time. And no matter how bad you feel, it doesn't matter. But also that you're able to convince yourself of a moral stance that doesn't necessarily hold up. And I know that I've done it, you know, not to that extent, but I think living in this world, it's easy to start to be like, well, I didn't have any control over that. And so therefore, you know, I'm not implicated in this, but often due to the interconnected nature of everything, the the thing that's difficult to deal with is, is that we're all kind of complicit in everything, right? Because everything is connected. Right. And that's, and that's why I get frustrated when I'm reading a story and it's very much just the character is innocent, like cinnamon roll, you know, whatever. And they're put upon and they are up against like somebody who's just like, is just bad. And I'm just like, and, and depending on the setting, there's, there's this, um, opinion of sophistication to that. But to me, it's just like, this is no more morally complex than like the, the, the pure knight slays the dragon. Right. Um, it's not doing any, it's not exploring the depths of these human emotions. It's just this kind of solve of just like, I am good. I stop bad thing. Don't think about any further than that. Don't think about any bad things I've done. Don't think about anything that bothers me. Kind of kind of, kind of stuff is just like, it's so, and I, I think that's just why I gravitate so much to horror is just because you're allowed to get into that stuff. You're allowed to get into how complicated people are. It, it's, it's wild to me how readily we sweep things under the rug and, you know, we, we rationalize it. And, and that's stuff in real life. Meanwhile, we have this thing going on right now where if someone depicts a bad thing in fiction, it's considered an endorsement because people are expecting a moral parable. Right. And it's just like, that's not how fiction works. That's not how life works. Nothing is that simple. Mm-hmm. I think it's more dicey to absolve your characters of everything they do. You know, I think it's more Absolutely. dicey. To show a character that's always doing the right thing because that's not true to life. I go through life not wanting to hurt anybody. And guess what? I've still hurt people. That's how it is. Like, it's a part of being alive. That doesn't mean you should just shrug it off when it happens. But it means that you have to reckon with these situations as they arise and that you're not perfect. And that's important right. to know. And that's the <laughs> big thing that's really hard for people to accept is right. I'm not perfect. Right. There's, there's a kind of commodification to a sense of goodness that a lot of people are, cannot wait to purchase. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's bullshit. It's yeah. complete bullshit. And it's this idea of like, if I, if I only watch good things, pure things that are pure of heart and, and just, you know, good guys who never did anything to anybody beat bad guys who just only do bad things. Then because I have interact, engaged with that, or like, you know, as, as a lot of people consume the content of it, if I read books that are like that, if, you know, et cetera, then that means I'm a good person because I like this thing where, where the good guys just do good things. And it's just like, it doesn't, it means nothing. It actually right. just means nothing at all. It, and because, um, you know, there's no such thing as a good person. Right. I think so too. 
You try to do things that help people. You try to harm people as little as you can. But when you start to treat good as an identity, then you start to label it like, well, I'm a good person. I kicked that puppy. That puppy must have done something. I was annoyed or whatever. Like there's all this rationalization because I'm a good person. Therefore, that couldn't have been bad. Right. I did this and therefore that can't be bad. I have made up for it. I've done other things. I've done more. I know it's ridiculous. And that I do think that a lot of those overly simplified moral narratives will be like, that's why I kind of think that those are damaging. I'm like, sometimes, I mean, I, it's weird because I, you know, I'm definitely speaking as somebody who was watching like Hellraiser as a kid (laughs) and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Same. But in a way, I think that that was kind of good because Hellraiser is incredibly morally ambiguous. And even to this day, I continue to engage with it in different ways. Every time I watch it, I feel like I'm watching Not that I'm watching a different movie. I'm watching the same movie, but I'm a different person, right? And that's kind of the feeling of revisiting something where it doesn't really, I mean, yeah, Kirstie could be considered like the hero, but it's not like this is a character who just went out that day and was like, I'm going to beat some Cenobites. It's something horrible that happens to her and she has to negotiate her way out of it. And And that's one of my favorite scenes because how often do you see a character decide that they're going to bargain. I with love that. The monster I know. And the monster listens. I know. That's what I love about those movies. And that's I I think why Kersey really is unique in and of herself. There's many yes. final girls in horror. They often serve different purposes from one another, but I would say very much so that Kersey was a character even as a kid I really connected with because she has those moments of being like wait a second wait a second wait a second right and, and I, like, I love the Cenobites call that out in the second movie and I love that yeah um, oh what was it last time didn't know about the box I love that I love all <laughs> of that the way that like the Cenobites are like no we know you now <laughs> like, right you they, us just already. like no more deals um <laughs> it's so it's such a fascinating uh, set of circumstances it's such it's such interesting characters and it's it's one of those things where it's just like I more enjoy messy characters in fiction both reading them and writing them was thing uh we need more heroes that suck was something I read <laughs> on Tumblr I think and I was like exactly because yes they, and, and they mean protagonists but I get what they mean like uh uh, no Gods for Drowning was my my fantasy novel that came out last year. Right. And everybody's everybody's a mess in that. Everybody's got something that they've done wrong, some bad choice that they're making, sometimes in the past, sometimes actively, sometimes like uh, sometimes they're doing awful things now because they're so busy denying the awful thing they did in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not being like this is a self-help book or some <laughs> sort of some crap like that. But I just mean that I think that that, I think those kinds of, of situations are going to enrich you more than something where it's just like, where that has that simplistic morality. Oh um, yeah. Books, books like the Hellbound Heart, books like uh, the Ballad of Black Tom, mm-hmm. uh, but books, books like, I'm like looking at my shelf. Like, yeah, books like, like this, every books book like that's that. awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say too, because that's it. Like I have, I mean, I can only speak for myself in all situations, but I think about how my own tendencies 
to just be, you know, the more it, you go through horrible things in life, right? And right. that I am surrounded in a small town right now by like Trump supporters and things like that. And I think that what happens is, is that they undergo these horrible things that happen to them in their lives. And then to them, it's like this excuse, you know, in a weird right. way. Exactly. And so that I always think, cause it's like, yeah, you know, my mom had a horrible time, but why, why is it okay for her to have these horrible viewpoints or something? Right. And I love horror in the same way, where it's just like, not only do I think that it can be surprisingly wholesome, right? <laughs> like there's <laughs> moments where you're like, kind of wholesome, but it also has that complexity that I do think matters because you don't want to get too much into the mindset of, something was taken from me because that's what so often in horror, something was taken from me and therefore, you know, I'm doing this, I'm uh, wrapped up in this situation. Right. You know, you get into these characters' heads whenever they're kind of coming out of it. So we're at one an hour and four minutes right now, and I'm really sorry to do this so late in the interview, but I want to ask you about Westerns. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about your Western specifically and kind of... um well, I guess I could ask this about a thousand different ways. So you have, you know, kind of like this splatterpunk style, also a Western. I remember reading something that said you were inspired by spaghetti Westerns. Me too. I love that stuff. The soundtracks, immaculate. Oh, yes. like, the cinematography, it's everything. I love those movies. But I was going to say too, a little bit maybe near dark. I don't know if I'm completely off with this, but... um yeah, I just wanted to ask, Westerns and horror is such, to me, a fascinating combination of things. I think we're seeing more and more people tapping into it. So I would love to hear why you felt compelled to do a horror Western. But also, I will note that this is not the first time that you have combined genres because you had your sci-fi horror. You know, this is, it's like kind of mashing Two different genres is like not necessarily like an alien concept to you. <laughs> yeah, I think after I think after Queen of Teeth was mashing horror and romance, it was kind of just like anything goes. Yeah. <laughs> as far as I was concerned for my stuff. So um, back a while ago, I think my favorite spaghetti Western was The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which feels like such a stock answer, but it's such it's, a, it's such great. a wild great movie yeah um nowadays i'm not sure though because i'm like i really love the climaxer for a few dollars more yes um but and then also like once upon a time in the west mm -hmm. is just such an incredible movie like i haven't watched that in forever and i really need to again because that just like every like all the early scenes of that movie feel like just something big is is happening and then it just the way the way things collide throughout the rest of the movie is just is so interesting and you end up loving these characters who are just the awful. worst <laughs> <laughs> yeah I know what you mean and like I think one of the things I I loved so much about those movies is that you know it wasn't like American westerns of before the spaghetti westerns where it was like this is the good guy this is the bad guy the, mm -hmm. the town is the setting um that's about it <laughs> I love that the characters of those tend to be really selfish and sometimes they work together and then sometimes they work against each other and you don't really know 
at what point a betrayal is going to happen. Like for a few dollars more, there's so many points where right. I think that, <laughs> that the colonel and um, I can't remember what they call Clint Eastwood's character in that movie. Right. Are going to turn on each other because it just seems like this would be easier as far as them trying to, to stop Indio. And, and they ex- they suspect it from each other. <laughs> oh, they do. Right. They don't trust each other completely either. It's a very tenuous alliance yeah. until you get down to when Indio so shockingly betrays his own guys so that he doesn't have to split the safe money 12 different ways. <laughs> and it's just like, I like by the, by the time that was happening, I was just like, what is happening right now? <laughs> Like I didn't under like he let they let them go. Wait, it doesn't make sense. Oh, like wait, now they're killing everybody. What is happening? <laughs> they're like the um, the original messy heroes, right? <laughs> it's like oh yeah, and spaghetti western heroes. And it's so funny because um you know some of that stuff is off the like some different western stuff is off of different um uh, samurai movies mm-hmm. like uh, Fistful of Dollars is off of Yojimbo. Um, right. And that's very much like selfish characters out for themselves, a lot of backstabbing and stuff versus something like the Magnificent Seven being off of Seven Samurai, right. where it is these are the good guys. They are coming in to stop the bad guys. Right. They're a mess in a different way. <laughs> right, right. And it's just um, it's just interesting to me. Um, yeah, I, I think that they have, there's kind of a weird marriage between horror and Westerns just because living in the old west sounds horrifying i guess just to begin with (laughs) um even modernized takes on it right but then you have so much potential with this yes um to do speculative stuff um and i and i love that because i've seen people put in werewolves or like magic or you know vampires or um ghosts or all kinds of things or the like wandering uh religious figure for instance yes well that was and that's (laughs) um i mean that was the thing i i actually started a different book because i really (laughs) wanted a book that felt like those spaghetti westerns um i wanted a bunch of selfish characters out for themselves um like, so they start off with like four bounty hunters and I got about eight chapters into that before I realized this, this wasn't working. And I was like, I can't decide to do an homage was, was essentially my, my right. uh, realization. I need to just kind of write my horror Western and see what it becomes. And it ended up being something very different um, where it's this, this story of essentially a, a found family in this town beset by like just this horrific power that they can barely understand at first and just the fact that they're gonna have to get they're gonna have to get hard about it if they're gonna survive and I mentioned this I mentioned the westerns drawing of of samurai stuff just because I the I feel like the book also drew off of uh, a Japanese source um the video game the Shin Megami Tensei uh series of video games have a similar perspective on Christianity as Cruel Angels Past Sundown has. And like, I didn't realize that was what I was doing at first. I kind of wrote the first chapter just like, okay, if you could do anything with a horror Western, what would you do? And I just wrote a chapter as if it was like a standalone thing. So that's kind of, and that became the first chapter of the book. Mm. Um, And it got me wondering, it's like, okay, why is this happening? Why is that happening? And it all kind of came together and, then I knew what I was doing, and but I was like, this is very much how those those games have a perspective of like heavenly power as a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
And I just found that more interesting to explore than the devil. Right. Because there was, I forget the name of the movie, but there was some, there was a, there was a horror Western movie and it, it literally was just that these, these people had gotten power from the devil. And so like anytime somebody rode into their town, they like, they killed them. Right. Um, and I was just like, I just, I just don't find that. I don't find that very complex. I don't, I don't find that interesting enough for for at least like for a 90 minute movie whatever but for a right. book i'm gonna have to write and read <laughs> over and over again like i want something more to chew on i want to get into like and and the funny thing is i'm i i'm waiting for i'm waiting for people to get pissed about it and i'm like i'm actually glad that that i haven't seen that not because i mean it's not not that nobody's ever explored this stuff before um but just i wanted to i wanted to tackle elements of consent within Christian lore as far as essentially, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. This is revealed like a third of the way into the book that essentially the the antagonist of this book is doing all these terrible things because he is considers himself the, the guardian of the second coming. And um, it's just one of those examples, like this is a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Therefore, anything I do is justified. Oh, right. And that's such a Western, <laughs> like... Yeah, um, but that, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about, like, simplicity in, in morals. It's just, like, a means, you know, means justifying, ends justifying the means. Mm -hmm. um, that's how he sees it. Like, it doesn't matter that he's, like, tries to stab, he stabs the main character at the beginning of the book. Right. Um, because as far as he's concerned, like, well, you're going to heaven, so I'm actually doing you a favor. Yeah. <laughs> and this is really important. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. This is really important. So you can't be in my way anyhow. It's a win-win, really. Um, the fact that she doesn't die is the big problem to him. Right. And I was going to say, too, because there is that kind of, you know, uh, far before, you know, Manson family or anything, but the idea of this kind of shady religious figure, like off, you know, like in a desert or, yeah. uh, you know, kind of isolated place, because I think that whenever... It's not necessarily religion so much as it's these institutions, right? right? And so you have these institutions and we know for a fact that when people aren't watched that like there can be, if you trust somebody to be a man of God or whatever, then there can be horrible things that come from that because people tend to just kind of shut their mind off. Like that's a good person, right? Right, because, so, right exactly. So like, okay, so whatever they do is going to be good. Yeah. And so I think that there's, it's almost, I just feel that there's a part of this all that just kind of connects. It's like, <laughs> you know, your books travel a lot of ground. They go to, in a lot of different directions. There's different places, different genres, everything. And something I was going to say is something that I generally get from your stories as different as they may be from one another is, is that there is this kind of questioning of not just authority figures and not just, you know, institutions, but also of like your own characters, <laughs> like your own right. morality. Well, and that's, and that's the thing. Um, again, it's not a spoiler because I don't think it's a spoiler because it happens in the first chapter. The main character, Annette, uh, her husband is, is murdered in the first chapter and she, essentially stares and does nothing while it happens. And there's a part of her through the book that's just like, is this my fault? Right. Because I didn't do anything. And it's like, yeah, she was under the influence of this, of this 
you know, presence that's at the, at their ranch. But also she's like, did I do it because, did I not do anything because I knew that he wanted me to have a baby and I couldn't, I haven't been able to get pregnant and he doesn't know that I'm actually relieved about that. And it's just a lot of self-doubt and, and reflection and, um, and messiness. It's, it's this messiness of what's going on. And the fact that she has to get violent is hard for her. Um, the fact that she has to, she has to essentially act like the person who killed her husband to stop this other person who's trying to kill her is, is difficult for her. Like she, she feels like she's not supposed to be angry but she is, she is so, so angry inside. And we're told that we're told not to be angry. We're, right. we're told that we shouldn't be frustrated about these, you know, harmful systems about when a good person does something, it's just like, oh, well, you know, forgiveness is the most important thing. And it's just like, no, this, this, this needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. And the different characters, I think that as a unit, they are a beneficial unit. They they look out for each other. Um, but as individuals, they have to make tough choices. Right. <sighs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking too because uh, that it cruel angels pass sundown. See, I haven't been on Twitter for like a month and a half or something, so I don't actually know everything right now. But that was the last book that was published, correct? That people can physically yes. buy, but you have a pre-order up, right? Yes. Uh, more than one, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so like I have a, uh, so next, I have four books coming out next year. So like three of those are up for pre-order, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. <laughs> um, Cranberry Cove is a supernatural crime novella that's coming out from Bad Hand Books. And then we have like the hard co- limited hardcover for the Ghostlands of Nally Glasgow coming out in summer next year. And then my next Titan book is also for pre-order and that's a vampire book, All the Hearts You Eat. But there's still, before all that, there's a book coming out <laughs> this year. Um, a Light Most Hateful from Titan Books is coming out exactly a month from when we're recording this. So I don't know if it'll be out already when this goes up or if it'll mm. be like right around the corner. But yeah, that one... Uh, that one is about a girl, Olivia, who ran away from home from when she was 15 to this nothing ever happens town in Pennsylvania. And she's kind of just accepted that this is where she's going to be until she's at her shift at the drive-in theater one night and this weird storm comes out of nowhere and a monster appears at the drive-in and like eats one of her former classmates and... Mm. Her, the people of the town all kind of like go into a violent trance and it's essentially her trying to find her best friend, Sunflower, who's like the only person who's been good to her in this town and try to get out before it's too late because as like reality starts to break apart. Ooh, <laughs> this reminds me for some reason of Langoliers, but not really, but <laughs> kind of, right? Where like the reality, I mean, I might just be forever scarred from like watching this 90s made for TV version of the Langoliers <laughs> where like all of the Pac-Man monsters come in and like start ripping like the past <laughs> apart or whatever. But in my mind, that took on like a very like 1996 vibe. Um, well, the funny thing with that, like I, I, I watched that movie and I didn't think much of it. Right. <laughs> and it was like, I was like, is there something here? 
And then I read the novella. Yeah. And I was like, this is actually pretty good. Like, this is a, this is a solid mystery. Seriously. And it's like, if they just had the budget or they just hadn't gone with CGI, because like 1996, you know, CGI just wasn't quite there yet. Doesn't hold up too good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, this wasn't a bad idea overall. Yeah. Like, it was, it was, it's actually a, de- a decent, um, Novella, I, I I I like that. That's probably one of my favorite Stephen King books. Is that that um, was it? Four past midnight, right? Yeah, um, I think that so. has that and uh, Secret Window, Secret Garden, mm-hmm. um, the Library Policeman, which I haven't been able to make get myself to reread that story because of what happens in it. But it is right. a good story, and uh, the Sun Dog, which I think is one of his best stories which nobody thinks about. Nobody pays attention to the sun dog. They're all about Cujo. And I'm like, you're missing out. The sun dog is so much scarier than Cujo. Yeah. And that's, they when they did Castle Rock, there was like a callback. I believe um, one of the characters pops back up. Oh, really? And- uh, yeah. Like, but they haven't adapted that story, like, which is nuts to me. Yeah. Because I'm just like, wild. that is one of his best stories and it's just completely ignored so they can like do the boogeyman. And I'm just like, that's just bonkers to me. (laughs) I know it is. It's wild. What stories of his, because (laughs) this is another writer with just ridiculously prolific output. Right. Where it's just like, I don't, I know even having read a ton of Stephen King books, I have not read even half of his output. Oh, same, same. Like, and I was eating through those when I was a teen, but after, after Dreamcatcher and It, I was just devouring those and it still was like, right. I probably not even read half, so. Same, but it's one of those ones <laughs> where it's like they were laying all over the place. Like it was very easy to find a Stephen King book. Right, right. And there's compelling stuff in there. I don't, I, like I say, I will be like, oh, I'm critical of Stephen King. But then it's also like, well, he's bringing up a lot of things that I think right. were good to explore, even if not necessarily always was he the one <laughs> to do it, right? Right, and that's and that's one of the things. He, because he's producing so much, I think it's understandable that some of this stuff is going to be clumsy or maybe not sure. great or whatever. Uh, what was his book later? That was one of those books where it was like his writing was as compelling as it tends to be. But the story, the stuff in it was felt like if it was like Stephen King, you've, 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 uh, this is well-trod ground for you. <laughs> like you've been, you've, everything in this book is something you've done in more interesting ways before. Right, right. And it's not like this is bad. And honestly, if somebody's never read a Stephen King book, then I was like, yeah, read later. This is a good one. Yeah. It's it's short. It's short. It's kind which, of him and, doing karaoke of himself. Right. It's but... kind of it's kind of a little bit of a best of, like, you know, greatest hits kind of thing. Like right. this, and it's 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 episodic enough to be kind of like, yeah, if you've never read a Stephen King book before, this is a good start. Sure. Um, but for if you're well seasoned, it might not be that satisfying. Right, right, right. And yep. we got way off from a light most table. <laughs> you know what? You know what? It, I don't think we did, though, right? Like, that's kind of the point. Yeah, when I guess. you're talking about horror, you're just going to go in all directions. <laughs> right. There's way too much to talk about when it comes to horror. And even with your books, I was like, okay, cool. Well, we could just talk about one of your books for this entire interview and or we can kind of do like a theme overview, which is kind of what I wanted to do. And then, you know, here's what's great, though, is you have enough books coming out. 
you can come back. <laughs> we can talk yeah, about that's, that's definitely, one of these if next I, books. <laughs> if I came back at the same time next year, there's going to be a whole nother chunk of, of, of books <laughs> dropped on top. Um, cause the, the worm, Worm and his King's trilogy also that ends right. next year. Yeah, um, yeah, Song yeah. Song of the Tyrant Worm, which is huge. That's like something we didn't <laughs> even talk about, but I was like, oh yeah, there's a whole trilogy coming to an end now. Yeah, um and that was and you know what that's another one of those things like tying back to what we were talking about is like the villain of the first book is the main character of the second book. Yeah. <laughs> so who's And the and good there are people who are just like who's the I don't really want to read I don't want to really read about her. And then and I'm like, and I get that. Sure. I'm hoping I won them over though. Because yeah. I do I want to explore the character. You know, I wanted to to understand her better. I wanted people to understand where she was coming from. That didn't mean it was gonna redeem her or anything. So hopefully, like, you know, but I wanted to kind of explore what what leads people to, you know, from being one the person they used to be to the people they become. Oh, and see, this maybe is like, because I was thinking about in Castle Rock, whenever they have Annie Wilkes, I always think about that season specifically where Annie Wilkes, the worst, worst character of all time, she's a horrible (laughs) nightmare person. You do not want to empathize with her. And then you end up empathizing with her in Castle Rock. But the way that they do it makes her scarier. And I think that that's something that is this is a whole different interview, so why even get into it right now? (laughs) But it's basically just that in my personal beliefs, at the bottom of my heart, at everything that I write, I'm always thinking that empathy is the scariest thing in a lot of ways, where it's like the horror of horror is always empathy-based for me. It's like you feel too much for these characters and you really care what happens to them. And that's but I want scary. that. I want but, uh, yeah. you, I want someone to care about that and then be upset that they care so much about yeah. this awful person. I, yes. I, because um, to, for me, and that's that's one of the reasons you kind of get into this. But like for me, empathy is one of my core like tenets with with what I'm what, with what I write. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's it's extremely important to me um, to to grasp hold that. And my and sometimes I go in without a plan. It's like I have no idea how I'm going to feel anything about this character who's terrible and as I'm writing it just the humanity just kind of seeps in and because I I think for a lot of those characters at the bottom of things if you peel away a lot of it they're deeply sad yeah and you can dig into that a bit mm-hmm uh, okay, this is literally a whole other interview I have now in my head <laughs> that I want to like ask. But okay, so we're at 90 minutes, probably a good time to say goodbye. But I wanted to ask <laughs> if people want to follow you, obviously go get Haley's books, of course. And there's any place you can get them. You can get them audiobook, which is great as well. You can find them in anthologies everywhere. Pick up an anthology. Haley's probably in it. <laughs> like, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> but I was going to ask, you know, otherwise, obviously, actually, you have a really nice website. That's a good breakdown. It was very helpful. I try to keep I was, it up to date. <laughs> yep. You're better at it than I am. So I <laughs> was like, Yes. And it's always nice too, because, you know, if you're doing interviews, I always appreciate it because there's some websites like mine where when people look, they probably are going to see three things and be like, well, those are all five years apart. Um, (laughs) What have you been doing? Um, So I appreciate it. But where can people find you online other than, of course, your website? 
well, I should, I should still mention the URLs, HaleyPiper.com. And um, I'm on Twitter for as long as that lasts, <laughs> at, uh, HaleyPiperSays. Um, and then I'm on TikTok, Tumblr, Instagram, and Blue Sky at Haley Piper Fights. And then, uh, yeah, so October 10th, A Light Most Hateful comes out. It's my 10th mm. book. And uh, Weird ha- Weird Tales, uh, 100 Years of Weird also right. comes out that day. And strangely enough, it has my 100th short story. Wow. I didn't realize that. I saw that that was coming out, though. And that's just <laughs> going to be so exciting because Weird Tales, that's, again, an entire interview. We could talk about Weird right. Tales. That's been going on forever. <laughs> right. And For uh, it has years. a huge, huge <laughs> history behind it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I'm so excited. So two bir- two book birthdays. They're both Libras. Go check them out. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. I mean, thanks for hanging out. You know, Thank like you so this much for having me. A nice Sunday afternoon where we just talked about the most horrible things. And <laughs> that for me is a good day, right? So. Yeah. No, it's always fun to talk about horror to me. Oh, yeah, I think so, too. And a little bit spaghetti westerns, but <laughs> you'll, we'll have you back because, as I said, literally trying to get off of this call, I was like 17 more things to ask Kaylee now. And so we'll, we'll just have to have you back. But thank you. Yeah, for being no, here I'd be happy to come back. <laughs> thanks, listeners. Thanks to you, of course. Shout out to my co-hosts who are not here today, Essie Flinor and Monica Estrella Negra. Thank you very much to, um, you know, Kate, who's doing the sound, Kate Warner, and Katie, who did the theme music, and everybody who subscribed to our Patreon. You, 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 listener, you, (laughs) all of you, thank you very much for being here. And I believe that this is the first episode of a horror extravaganza that we're doing. So thanks for being here for that as well. And tune in next week for more me taking people on long tangents into horror. (laughs) Farewell. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at BitchesOnComics and on Instagram at at BitchesOnComics. Our website is, brace yourself, BitchesOnComics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm Essie Fleenor. You can learn more about me at essiefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at se underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella Negra, and you can find me at 
audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.